Hello, Coffin Bond listeners, and welcome back. We have Podcast 59. Well, I, best, I should start this podcast with G'day, as we're talking Aussies and US expats today. Um, we have a special guest, Renuka Summers, on the line with us. Uh, Renuka, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jamie no, and Tony. Thank you very much for coming on. We, uh, I guess Tony's, Tony's got some great background in these topics, um, but it's good to get another expert in. So I guess my disclaimer is I'm not an advisor, so I'll be taking that backward step because when you, st- when you two start talking pivot laws and, and ways to help expats, um, that doesn't seem to be my specialty area. But uh, you two have been catching up a lot lately um, as there's been a lot of people reaching out. So we thought we'd get together today um, just to go across a few things, um, just to get a bit of information out there for our expat clients and, and maybe their friends. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So it's, um, now uh, just just a bit of a background uh, for our listeners, Renuka. You are an Australian expat in the US, uh, but you have a legal background having worked in some very large accounting firms here and legal firms uh, here as well as uh, with legal and taxation. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Yeah, so it's um, so 26 years here, a uh, number of years uh, working. Uh, so university, you said, here in Australia? Um, yes, I moved to Monash. Yep, yep Monash mm-hmm. University. Uh, legal background, then moved off to the US and now work in specialist expat um, I suppose in, in some ways, Peter is building a diversified uh, firm. So it's not just purely taxation for expats um, anymore. Uh, he's very entrepreneurial, Peter Harper at a senior advisors. So first of all, uh, well done for moving to the US. How did you meet Peter and, and how's that going? Um, I actually met Peter through um, a a friend, a former colleague of his, whom I used to consult for, Matthew Burgess at Mew Legal. And I was consulting for Matthew's firm um, online from the US. And um, and then I met up with Peter, went to visit Peter in Atlanta and we were talking and we realized we'd had some very common background and common interests in this particular space. So, and that's when I joined Asina last year. Now, am I correct in saying that you have also pushed uh, Peter to be looking at the cross-border estate planning issues for clients as well, not just taxation? Correct. So, um, in previously when I worked in Australia, I did a lot of high-end um, estate planning for um, Australian families, and so it was—it's always been an interest of mine and. I saw it as a natural extension of what we were already doing for clients here in the U.S. who would, who necessarily, due to their circumstances here, that they actually required it. It, it. For me, it seemed very like a natural progression moving forward, not just from the tax space, but into uh, offering clients a, a more full-service sort of approach. And so that's where we, you know, we decided to move into that market too. Yeah, listen, I totally agree with you. I give a talk here in Australia for both the legal and accounting and financial services profession as well. Um, and that talk is based on, you know, why aren't accountants, lawyers and financial planners actually working so closer together? Because there is, if you think of those three circles um, interjoining with each other, there is that area in the middle, which is grey. So as an example, I have to understand the tax consequences of any investment recommendations that I provide to clients. Um, but I also have to understand how those potentially affect their estate planning issues as well. 
you know, we were discussing last week uh, with expats, uh, US expats who one partner might not be a US uh, citizen, they might still be an Australian citizen living here. And from an estate planning perspective, uh, who should, how insurance policies should be structured and all those range of things as well. So they're really important areas. And I suppose this is how we have been working with each other and we've been working with Peter now for about a year and a half. Uh, but looking for that expert field rather than just saying, here's some investments, uh, Mr. Australian or US expat clients. It's understanding those tax implications, having an expert who can actually help them with their tax, but also having that expert who can help them with their estate planning. As I've always said, all three are very much intertwined. Absolutely, Tony. I totally agree with you. I, I think um, you can't advise properly unless you have that comprehensive holistic approach to um, providing that type of advice. And I think clients really appreciate that when they can see that you're not just an expert in any particular field, but you have, you can provide them with um, some advice that is commercially viable, but also takes into account other aspects that they may not have already thought, thought about. Which yeah, can have. I've always said I don't think you should actually be um, advising if you don't have a broad range of knowledge in other areas, which is still important to a client. So I'm certainly no expert whatsoever in estate planning um, or US estate planning or taxation, but I have a broad enough knowledge to be able to say, here are the experts and here's what mm -hmm. you have to do. And I can, and sometime, in some cases, I actually can't even do their investment work for them until they get all their accounting issues and things like that sorted out anyway. So sometimes there's that progression where I say, well, this has to be sorted out prior to me being able to actually do any work for you as well. And that's, and that's the reason why we work together and work together so successfully, which has been wonderful. Um, okay. I'm going to start, Renuka, just ask you um, some simple questions uh, for... Mm -hmm. US expats living here in Australia, they might be executives, they've been brought out here by US companies that are, are setting up or have set up here in Australia. They could be companies like Oracle or Microsoft or you know any of, the, any of those large firms as an example. From a taxation reporting, they might have share options in those companies as well uh, mm -hmm. here. So, so basically it's a case of from a US uh, taxation situation, What's the basics that these uh, U.S. clients need to under, U.S. citizens need to understand to start with their obligations from a taxation perspective? So, just because they're not living in the U.S. doesn't mean they're not subject to U.S. tax. So, if they are a U.S. citizen or a U.S. green card holder, so what's defined as a U.S. person, they are subject to tax um, on worldwide income and regardless of where, where they live. So they could be an Australian tax resident living in, living in Australia, but they would still have obligations to file tax returns in the US and declare income from all sources in the US as well. That obligation um, is not suspended just because they're not living in the US. So that continues. Now, a lot so, of people... I was going to say a lot of people are under the misconception that when you say reporting all income mm -hmm. uh, in the US, uh, so worldwide income, but report Correct. and do, and they so they do have to lodge their US tax returns every year as well, as well as Correct. Australian on that basis as well. Now a lot of people I find are under the misconception when you say um, you know um, disclose all uh, worldwide income. Their thought process seems to be that only is personal exertion income. 
Uh, but that's not correct, is it? It's actually income from investment sources, etc. Correct. And any entities they control can also is required to be disclosed in the U.S. So if they have, or if there's, if um, they have interests in an Australian trust, for example, because of a family relationship, a wife, um, a spouse having that kind of a setup, then they can they have to disclose that as well in for U.S. purposes, including and any companies that they may be interested in or have it, have any interest in also need to be disclosed, and also any. Uh, bank accounts with um, balances over ten thousand US dollars have also to be disclosed. What about uh, how is how is um, superannuation treated in those cases? Okay, it depends on what type of superannuation fund it is. So, in in a common case, so for in in the executive type situation, if they have an industry fund, then it's treated as um, the contributions that are made every year by the employer. Um, under Australian law is considered to be their income and, in, and must be disclosed in their US tax return as such and also disclosed on what's called an FBAR as a foreign um, financial account. So, so on that basis, on mm -hmm. that basis in Renuka, you've got the executive, they have uh, the full maximum concessional contribution going into super because of their salary. So mm -hmm. they've got 25,000 going into super. That 25,000 that goes into superannuation here as a concessional contribution is taxed, mm -hmm. at, is taxed by the fund at 15 mm -hmm. cents in a dollar. Um, so do they have to then report the entire 25,000 or is it the 25,000 less the contributions tax in their US tax return? My understanding is is that it is the entire contribution, Tony? So um, there's not there's not necessarily a tax offset for them there. I don't think there is one in this situation. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so in this particular case, it's the full amount that is um, disclosed and subject to tax in yeah. in the US. Yeah. So this seems this seems to be a bit of a bony contention uh, with US expats basically stating, well, I actually never got that $25,000. It's been put into superannuation fund, yet I still now have a, whatever their tax bill could be, you know, five or $10,000 tax bill uh, mm -hmm. because of that contribution that they've never asked for in the first place, um, et cetera. Whereas we know here in Australia, if you work and you're an employee, superannuation is compulsory. So, mm -hmm. so based on that, there seems to be a bit of a bone of contention with them, whether uh, they actually report that in their US tax returns or not. But basically it is a case that it is compulsory and it does have to be disclosed. And there are high penalties for non-disclosure. So um, you really do not want to be um, non-compliant in the US because the penalties are quite prohibitive. Yeah. Um, but there is a um, there is a bright um, sort of silver lining, so to speak, for um, experts in that case, Tony, because you have what's called the um, foreign earned income exclusion for US experts who are not in the US, but who are earning income from yeah, another country that they can actually claim an exemption of up to uh, 110,000 US dollars every in the current yep. year. So um, it's not all bad in that sense. There is that um, yeah. threshold exemption as well. So, um, you know, which can be quite beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. So that then takes us on to um, the controller trust issues that US expats can have here as well. Mm -hmm. So if we if we stay with superannuation just for the time being, is that 
a self-managed super fund, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, mm-hmm. because this is your area, not mine, but a self-managed mm-hmm. superannuation fund is classed as a controller trust mm-hmm. um, in regards for taxation purposes, whereas if they've just got their money going into a normal superannuation fund, whether it's an industry fund or a corporate fund, et cetera, it's not mm-hmm. classed as a controller trust. So there'll be two completely different taxation issues in respect to the earnings of the fund. Is that correct? Um, correct. Um, so if it's a controller fund, you're essentially the um, beneficiary in this case. Is see, it, it depends on the degree of control you have. So in an industry fund, you really do not have any uh, control because there is the, the independent trustee, so to speak, who makes all the investment decisions. But in an SMSF, it's different because um, it's essentially the beneficiary who is also the director of the, if there's a corporate trustee or the trustee of the super fund itself who is making all those decisions and has that final say, yes. So, so they the, do have. So the taxation on that now, on that basis, is the individual taxed for those earnings or is the super fund taxed uh, for those it's, earnings? It's, it's seen to, you're essentially, it's a disregarded entity in that case. So a controller trust or what the US calls a foreign grantor trust yep. is a disregarded entity for US tax purposes. So it's essentially seen as a flow through. So it's all, it's attributed to the US person who is contro- seen to control that trust. And so they're, they're basically trust, uh, sorry, taxed on the um, whatever portion they are seen to control. So a self-managed superannuation fund for a US citizen living here in Australia is not necessarily financially or from a taxation perspective in their best interest. It's not. No. No, no it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't yep. be in that particular case. No. Yep. Okay. So we, we move on then to from a taxation perspective um, of investments in their per, in U.S. citizen here in Australia once again, mm-hmm. and let's let's assume they're a couple and both are U.S. citizens in this case. Mm-hmm. The scenario of under the uh, PIFIC, what I commonly call the PIFIC uh, laws. Mm-hmm. From a taxation perspective, it can be quite prohibitive in respect to the investment options outside of super, just personal investments now, that mm-hmm. uh, the US expat can have in their personal name. Right. Yeah. So yeah, in I was a- going to say if you could explain that just a little bit for us. Right. So with a PIVIC is essentially for US purposes a foreign company which is seen to derive at least 75% of its income from passive sources or which holds assets of which at least 50% of the assets produce passive income, such as dividends, interest, rent, royalties, and capital gains. So um, I suppose the most common example might be something like a mutual fund where yeah. you have no um, um, control, but it's the income's most always, almost always passive. And there are specific taxing rules in relation to that type of income in, in the US. So where you can choose to have it deferred or you can have it taxed in the current year, but then you have to comply with certain um, requirements to have that um, qualification, so to speak. And, but taxing, they are taxed at higher rates. So it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it can be quite a, um, a rather uh, t- tax inefficient way to hold assets for, um, for these particular types of clients. So, um, so, it's not encu- so it's not encouraging then. They're, let's put it this way. The IRS <laughs> um, are not actually encouraging people to build up investment portfolios offshore. 
no, well, not, not in this particular case, because um, because once you're classified as a PIFIC, you will always be taxed as a PIFIC and at penalty rates. So unless you take specific action to mitigate that. So um, what is some of the specific action that, that you could take? So you, you can have what is called a QEF, so a qualified um, type fund where you can elect to um, elect not to be taxed that way or where you comply with certain um, conditions in the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code, you can then say, okay, if you're compliant with that, can you then bring forward the tax treatment or um, uh, have that income then taxed at, um, instead of the highest ordinary income rates plus interest, um, have it taxed as um, what I called, um, it, it depends on whether it's considered an excess distribution and then those are taxed like regular dividends, where gains, whereas gains are taxed like, um, sorry, can we go back a step? <laughs> yeah, please. So, please do, yeah. Um, so, so if an entity qualifies as a PIFIC, it's shareholders who are, US persons are taxed on excess distributions at their pro, on, on their share of um, the income at the highest income rate plus interest, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that's applied to the income that is deemed to be deferred. So if you don't have that deferral of income, then you can bring, bring it forward and then have it tax, otherwise have it taxed as regular dividends yeah. at ordinary tax rates. So, and that does, it's not just your mutual funds or managed funds. It also includes things like ETFs as well. And even, uh, yeah, and even direct equities too. So if, if they were to buy BHP shares as an example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, disclaimer, I'm not suggesting go out and buy BHP shares, but, <laughs> but it's so same thing. It, it, with this, Tony, is, is that other areas like how is property treated as an investment over here? So US, as US expat here, is property taxed on the same way or? Pretty much. So, um, but you, so you would declare the rental income and you will get deductions. So, so pretty much the way it works in, in Australia. And then you would, you can also claim foreign tax credits on income that on, sorry, the tax that you paid in Australia. That's provided you hold the um, property in your own name, of course. So it's, it's far more advantageous from an investment perspective. It's far more yes. advantageous for a US citizen to have an investment property portfolio here in Australia, rather than a mutual fund slash managed fund ETF portfolio here in Australia. Correct. But yep. then you've got to take into account that if when you sell the property in Australia, you're subject to Australian tax um, and, yep. and you don't get the 50% gain as a non-resident. Oh, sorry, once you're a non-resident. Yes. Unless yep. you sell it while you, um, yes, yeah, so you've got to resident. take that. Yes, which, so timing is, is everything. Which is what we've always spoken yes. about is don't mm-hmm. do don't buy or sell anything without getting advice first. Right. Uh, so and, and we, we we often speak about, you know, pre departure planning. Uh, so mm-hmm. pre departure planning is for, you know, even Australian expats in the US plan it all properly prior to coming back to Australia so that you uh, you you get the greatest legal beneficial uh, outcome prior to actually coming back to Australia and for US expats as well uh, mm-hmm. prior to moving back uh, to the US as well. So it can be quite prohibitive in respect to selling a property here, you know, even for Australian expats living in the US is selling their property here and even their residential property is no longer exempt from capital gains tax. Uh, goes right. back to the original purchase price, which can be horrific. And sometimes people don't know, which is you know, they, they don't know until they get the tax bill. 
Um, uh, that we've, comes had so many, we've had so many clients calling us about the new rules from 30 June, um, yeah. you know, trying to plan ahead and see what they yeah, can do. Trying yeah. to plan ahead prior to 30th of June to sell a property whilst uh, here in Australia, you've got uh, real estate agents not allowed to show people through property because of COVID-19. It's, um, mm -hmm. it, it can be very stressful. Quite <laughs> very challenging. Yeah, yeah. Very, very challenging <laughs> without a doubt. Let's, let's move on then to the next part is that there's, there's, you know, it was a Winston Churchill once said the two great, the two things in life that are guaranteed are death and taxes. And they're the two areas that you deal with, uh, being estate planning and taxes, of course, uh, mm -hmm. from your accounting side as well. So when we're talking about, um, once again, US citizens here in Australia, from an estate mm -hmm. planning perspective, uh, let's say, for example, they own assets here in Australia. They still own assets in the US as well. Um, one of them passes away. Uh, the surviving spouse is still a US or joint citizen, US Australian citizen. From, mm -hmm. a, from an estate planning perspective, do they need to have um, a will uh, or estate plan in the US and in Australia? Is that suggested or are there other ways of doing things as well, depending on the size of their estate? I think that's, um, there are a number of variables there. So yeah. it depends a lot on the size of the estate, on how long they plan on being outside of the US, um, where and what proportion of their assets is held in each country. So, uh, so taking into account those factors, you then consider what's best for each particular client on a as needed basis. So for example, the in in the US, um, the US has um, what's called I mean what they they have estate taxes so uh, and that's both federal at a federal level and states can also impose um, estate taxes and and quite a few other states do so um, and there's a certain exemption threshold so depending on the size of the estate so at the moment the exemption threshold is eleven point five eight million for an individual or um, if both um, if both spouses are US citizens, then that threshold goes up to 23.16 million. Um, however, from 2026, those thresholds are supposed to be coming down to the pre-2018 levels of 5.49 million for an individual and 10.98 million for a married couple. So, a substantial drop. It is, um, yeah. It, um, I think when President Trump came in, there were a lot of um, tax changes so that temporarily brought up the um, exemption, the threshold up um, to the higher rates. Yeah. And so, okay. So, so based on that, you have the U.S. Australian uh, uh, citizen, U.S. Uh, living here in Australia. They've got mm -hmm. um, assets uh, in California, let's say, and they have assets here in Melbourne as well. They've got a couple of children. Those children are also dual citizens um, as well. From their perspective, they could be looking at, I think we had the discussion last week, whether it's mm -hmm. an Australian, Australian will, US will, and, or an international will. Do you want to just, mm -hmm. do you just want to touch on an international will, who, who should be considering an international will and why they, why they could be advantageous? So an international will, um, Tony, is a will that's been prepared in accordance with the Unidroit uh, Convention, which is basically an, another uh, international uh, international convention as to how um, 
wills in each jurisdiction which is a party to that convention what is deemed to be acceptable and what it provided it's been prepared in that particular way. So, for example, there are specific guidelines as to how it should be witnessed and attested and what pages need to be signed and um, who the particular witnesses should be. So, and it includes um, one of the witnesses must be somebody who's qualified to witness international wills. And that's usually in the, in, in the US, that's a notary public in addition to the two independent witnesses. So, um, and then, so if, if you prepare the will in, in terms of as a unit, uh, as a, sorry, an international will, then it, and Australia is a party to that convention and so are a certain states in the US. So not all states, but certain states in the US are as well. So then if both jurisdictions are parties, then the, um, will can be easily recognized and subjected to probate in both jurisdictions much more easily. Whereas if you have separate wills, then you've got to have probate in each separate jurisdictions that's timely and costly and can hold up the process. And if you have a single will covering all of your assets, then you can't, you can't necessarily have, um, you have to have probate in both jurisdictions under the same will, again, creates complications of its own. So um, it really depends on the client's circumstances. So if, for example, in your, um, in your case, if the US expats are in Australia uh, temporarily rather than permanently, uh, an international will may be a good option for them. Same with um, perhaps Australians living in the US for a short term, that might be another, another good option for them as well. Yeah. However, if you have significant assets in different countries and um, you move between the countries or you have homes between each country, then that's a different matter. So uh, in which case you might actually want to have separate wills in each jurisdiction, um, provided you know, they're each prepared um, very stringently and neither overrides the other. So, okay. And I think mm -hmm. that's what, so I suppose from that perspective, you'd need the lawyers who are actually drafting these wills mm -hmm. uh, to actually be working with each other. Correct. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, which, which is something that is, they just, what I've found here is, oh no, I've got a lawyer and they've done it here, but that lawyer hasn't taken into consideration anything else, doesn't necessarily understand the consequences for the US mm -hmm. citizens in regards to their own estate taxes over in the US. And, and you know, it's, sometimes, you know, in Australia, we, we do quite a lot where will recommend um, as part of their will, the client will set up a testamentary trust, uh, mm -hmm. say for their um, dependent children, um, yeah. or not even dependent children, just, you know, as sometimes as protecting the estate from predators, which could be simply the tax man. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, so based on that, a testamentary trust in the event of death could, for Australian assets could actually be then classed as a controller trust as well. Is that correct? Correct. So testamentary yeah. trust is a terrific option and if you're an Australian uh, living in Australia and your yes. children are going to be living in Australia, um, yeah. then it, it provides asset protection. It also provides concessionary treatment for um, distributions that are made to um, minors, so children yeah. under the age of 18. So yeah. a great option in that particular case. But if you have, um, for example, if, you're, if you subsequently become a non-resident of Australia or you have children who are subsequently non-residents of Australia, then they are essentially, and they're the 
primary beneficiaries, trustees, appointors of their trusts, what you have is a situation where this child is essentially controlling that trust one day and would be then subject to the US foreign grant or trust rules and would, uh, would be seen to essentially own that trust and be subject to 100% um, tax on 100% of the distributions from that trust. Yeah. So uh, we've actually just been advising a particular client on that because she was having her Australian will drafted and she wanted to have it done that way. But her son lives in California. And okay. so and we had to run through these very issues with her. Yeah, no, it can always be a tricky one. Okay, let's let's go back on uh, one part. You mentioned, for example, if the U.S. citizen, uh, let's say the U.S. citizen comes here to Australia, works in Australia, it was meant to be short term, but then as what sometimes happens, a lot of expats, they mm -hmm. fall in love and mm -hmm. they stay. So it's uh, so now they've just uh, that short term stint in Australia is now long term. Uh, they've mm -hmm. been together. Uh, they've got a family, their spouse might not be a US citizen or a green card holder. They might still mm -hmm. just be an Australian citizen on that basis. On, in regards to um, there, we, we spoke about some of the estate tax advantages and disadvantages if somebody, is, if you've got a couple where one is a US citizen and the other one is just purely an Australian citizen uh, in this right. scenario. Um, and one of the issues that you spoke about was that if the US citizen was to pass away first, uh, that's subject to normal US tax laws. Now in Australia, you can, they can have substantial life insurance policies because as you've known, you've lived here, you lived in Australia long enough. Uh, basically mm -hmm. you could end up having, you know, a lovely home with a million dollar mortgage and you've got a couple of children. All of a sudden you've got two to $3 million worth of life insurance. Um, now, one of the things that you stated as a simple example, a lot of people here in Australia will have their life insurance because it can be tax effective owned mm -hmm. by their superannuation fund. So if we go back and say the US citizen now had $3 million worth of life cover owned by their superannuation fund, mm -hmm. they pass away that $3 million worth of life insurance, their superannuation balance, if the house uh, was in their name um, or other investments that are in their name, they're all subject to the US tax. So if we, if they then passed away after a, after the year 2023, basically their potent, their estate is actually looking at a potential tax bill, even on the family home here in Australia, if that home was in their name. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, well, if it was held jointly, it would be the 50% attributable to what, you know, arguably was their contribution. Yeah. But um, the tricky part with um, life insurance in super in in, a, in an Australian super fund is that the super proceeds it's part of your superannuation proceeds and therefore part of your estate. So that insurance would actually be caught under um, in your assets for the purposes of the estate taxes as well. Yeah. In in that particular case, because it does then form part of your estate. Yep. So in, in it's. It's probably advisable in that in that situation to have that have the life insurance outside of your super mm. to avoid it being then subject to tax itself. So yeah. um, to U.S. estate taxes itself. 
So, so on that basis, you could have mm-hmm. the non-US citizen spouse as mm-hmm. the policy owner of the policy and the life insured. So in the, mm-hmm. event, in the event of the life insured who is the US citizen in this example passing away, the proceeds yes. go directly to the policy owner being the non-US citizen spouse. So therefore, that 2 or $3 million worth of life insurance does not form part of the US citizen's estate. Is that correct? Exactly. Correct. Yep. Yep. Yes. Okay. So... so so special planning, once again, it's uh, dealing with somebody who understands the tax consequences and not just going out and buying an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you, you have to make sure that your insurance policy is very specifically structured. So there are different options. For example, if you have, if both parties were, um, if both spouses were U.S. citizens, then you'd have a, you'd have a policy that only. Um, kicks in on the death of the survivor because of the deferral um, under the marital deduction. So where you basically defer your estate taxes to, a, to the death of the surviving spouse. Yeah. If, if, but that, that is only the case if both um, spouses are U.S. citizens. Yeah. So in other cases, you've got to have um, more, um, more deliberate estate, uh, sorry, planning in terms of your insurance as well to make sure that if in the case of a U.S. citizen spouse dying first, then that policy um, is paid out on on their death, and um, and it's not actually a part of their estate as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, an interesting one is we do have. I've often said the Australian share market has no innovation, and it's predominantly if you go back to every decade since 1978, it's predominantly banks and mining companies, with the mm-hmm. odd few new ones being CSL, Telstra, um, and Macquarie Bank, which are more recent listings. Mm-hmm. The now, when you consider that, one of the reasons why Australia doesn't have any innovation in respect to its uh, companies listed on the stock market is the moment you actually are good and have something, especially in technology or biotechnology a US private equity firm will come in and take an equity stake with a Mm -hmm. view to seeing how do we expand this in the US. Mm -hmm. Companies, now I know this is an area that a senior advisors work uh, very successfully in in helping Australian companies navigate the opportunities of going to the US and working in the US. Mm -hmm. Do you want to to just give some very brief, um, you know, ideas of, the pre-planning that is required from an individual basis, the company owner, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, and, and actually bringing a company potentially to the US, including you know different uh, state taxes and things like that, for example. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, that's something we deal with on a daily basis, Tony. So especially now, um, the Australian, the discretionary trust is a very sort of favorite, um, favored option for structuring a business because of flexibility and asset protection. But right now, Renuka, I've, I've always said I have absolutely nothing in my name except my children's surname. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so, otherwise, everything is through trust structures all over the place. <laughs> but yeah. in that particular case, Tony, you do not want to ex- uh, you do not want to transfer your business to the US under trust structure. No, I know. Not right now. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so we, and Peter and I just wrote um, a couple of articles for the Tax Institute Journal on this very particular thing, a uh, very particular point on um, structuring cross-border investments and transactions because um, the tax office has now um, come up with some tax determinations whereby 
beneficiaries of Australian discretionary trusts can be taxed, um, even if they're not living in Australia as non-residents, on capital gains from Australian trusts. And um, as a consequence, because of how this is structured, when you think about the flow of funds between the two countries, this can be very prohibitive to um, the individual beneficiary, like the effective tax rate on such a um, flow could be anywhere between 62.10% to 92.10%, depending on whether you, you get a foreign tax credit or not. So doesn't leave much left, does it? No, there, there isn't. So you've got to be very careful. So um, in, in t it, and it depends because if it's a business that's un the underlying business there without an interest in what's called Australian taxable property, real estate, essentially, you've really got um, a huge deficiency in structuring there. So you'd want to look at something like, um, ideally, if you're running a business in the US, to have it having a proper US structure in place. So in that case, you look at things like LLCs or C Corp, which is a US version of a, um, our version of a company versus an LLC, which is, which is essentially a company gives you that asset protection, but it's also a flow through through to the member. So we, we generally look at those sorts of options and look at um, the effective tax rate in terms of um, where the owner is residing, whether the funds go back to Australia or not, or is it going to be US specific? And sometimes it's having two separate structures, one for Australia and one for the US that can sometimes um, yield the best result and a more tax efficient result overall. So it really depends on individual circumstances, whether people are working you know, is it a partnership of trust? So how do they want to structure it? How do they want to move? So everything comes down to planning and everything comes down to timing, making sure you um, give yourself the time to properly plan and have that in place before you just move over. So the planning of that can be, can actually the timing, sorry, mm -hmm. um, of that, of planning for that to occur, that, that can be, you know, after two years worth of planning. Uh, ahead, of, ahead of schedule prior to actually going. So it's not just a case of Tony waking up one day and deciding, I think I'll start a hedge fund over in New York um, and then turning up and running it through my discretionary trust here in Australia and, and losing 92% of all income that I earn from it. So it's exactly. uh, so basically it is a case of that even if this is potentially on the agenda or um, you know something that's even written in the business plan is seeking advice up front uh, to to understand the benefits and consequences is just vitally important. Exactly, because often, I mean, we're we're dealing with situations every day where you've got Australian companies that are then helped by American um, companies, and then um, and then you know they partners or business partners want to opt out of it, and those are not the best or the most efficient structures to have. So, how do you? cater for everybody's needs and uh, if you've got a resident partner and a non-resident partner in there or shareholders and so and if you've got ultimately discretionary trust owning shares in an Australian company or an American company how do you you know make that all work for for all, all the parties so yeah and it's all it's better to do that beforehand than having to unravel a tax mess later on. Absolutely, and far cheaper mm -hmm. to do it beforehand than un unraveling a tax mess later on. Um, yeah. So, so just um, in closing, then Renuka, just uh, finishing up here. Then um, there's a couple of scenarios. Uh, a senior advisors we do know looks after look after 
you know, have a real expertise in expat uh, taxation planning and taxation work and estate planning. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as you do have a reputation of looking after high net worth and ultra high net worth families and, you know, expat families in the U.S., um, as well, you do have a service that also looks after your executives who are there working in the US who are expats as well. Um, and the estate planning services, et cetera, still does flow down, not just their personal taxation, but the estate planning services also uh, does flow down to Australian expats in the US and also US expats uh, here in Australia who need to lodge all their US work as well. Is that correct? Exactly. So high-end as well as expats, as well as... Um, you know, Aussies who, who are in America who have assets in both countries or are seeking to structure themselves in both countries um, or Americans who are moving to Australia and, again, are seeking to do the same. So, yeah, we, we do cover all segments of the market in that sense. Okay, so I just have a quick question for Jamie now, uh, Renuka. Mm -hmm. Jamie, do you still want to go and live and run a business in New York? I do. I just will get Renuka to come and help first and I'll get you to set it up. <laughs> yeah, and, you should speak to us first. Yeah, <laughs> and then we go from there. So I'll worry yeah. about finding my apartment. You guys worry about the rest. And I'm like, <laughs> but I think, I think today is really highlighted for people and, and we, we get a lot of inquiries, but you know, people do need to seek advice in these situations because it's, it's not just doing it on your own, um, you know, coming under one laws. You're coming under different states, different countries, and there's a lot to know. Exactly right. Exactly right, Jamie. Renuga, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Um, we're hoping you're enjoying your time over in the States. And hopefully thank we you. Catch up we, will put a, we will put a link to your websites as well um, attached to this podcast also. Terrific. Thank you. Thank okay. you, Jamie. Thank you, Thank Jamie. you, guys. Thanks.